Quick disclaimer this week, there's kind of a lot of violence. You remember that scene in Monty Python in the Quest for the Holy Grail where Arthur fights the Black Knight? Yeah, that's only a slight parody, because this week, things get bloody. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, we're continuing our King Arthur story of a young man who takes on too many quests as he continues to take on too many quests. We'll learn that questing is no excuse for not showering, especially when your shoulder smells like a dumpster, and if you're worried about your employees telling everyone you're too awesome, just leave them in a cabin by themselves forever. I'm sure they'll be fine. The creature this week is the reason why you shouldn't scream at owls in the street. This is Myths and Legends, episode 233b, Tis But a Scratch. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, we did sort of a soft reboot on our King Arthur story, with the introduction of a knight who didn't even know his own name. The boy, as the story calls him, was a foundling, someone who had been rescued by a lady of the lake, a member of a mysterious magical order, where lakes served as gateways to their realms. The boy left King Arthur's court after accepting two quests, the second of which being to serve as the champion of the Lady of Nohat, whose region was besieged by the King of Northumbria. He got a little waylaid on his mission and ended up ditching the knight that was escorting him to follow another. Instead of rescuing a beautiful lady, the knight learned that they were actually kidnapping her as he charged the knights protecting her. He was getting off to a great start. The lance sunk deep into the boy's shoulder. The young man felt it, hesitated for half a second, not enough time to start bleeding, and, with the swipe of his arm, wrenched the lance free, the force of which sent the other knight sprawling from his horse. His armor clanged on the ground. The boy dismounted when he heard the other two knights, his ally and the other one who had been guarding the woman, fighting with swords. He could see that the knight who had recruited him on this quest was beginning to flag, so the boy yelled out for the knight to give him his sword. The boy's squire was too far away. The knight blocked a blow, tossed his sword to the boy, and stepped back in time for the boy to resume the fight without missing a beat. Then, the other knight rose. The boy yelled for his friend to back up. He would take on both men. The two knights facing off with the boy relaxed. Yeah, no, we're not doing that. The boy pointed his sword, demanding that they fight him now. The knight said that the kid was wounded, and he was a kid, and he was doing a good job and all, so you know what? They would concede. It wouldn't be chivalrous of them to keep fighting, and this kid, this kid was going to force it, and hurt himself, and probably at least one of them too. They yelled out to the woman, who had fled to her house. Hey, hey lady, this guy won you. Sorry about that. They nodded to the boy and the knight and rode off into the woods. The boy looked to the knight. Wow, first quest down. That was easy. The knight looked at the boy. Yeah, your arm is just kind of dangling there. Good job, though. The knight, 
not the boy, but the other knight, looked to the woods and whistled. From a completely different spot than where their squires were hanging out, four servants ran from the woods with a tent in their hands, splashing across the stream. In an instant, the tent was set up and a table was set. The boy asked, were those there the whole time? The knight nodded as the lady emerged from the house. The servants began setting up the beds and they asked how many. The boy put his arm, the one that wasn't dangling at his side, around the woman he had just... one. Yeah. He said just two would do. One for the knight and one for him and his lady. Nope, the woman said, ducking under his arm and going to find something else to do. The boy stood there. The boy stood there, embarrassed. Better make it three. The Lady of Nohot grimaced. Wow, what was that? Did anyone else smell that? Her knight shook their heads. Then another walked into the expansive hall to announce the visitor. They all immediately knew the source of the horrid smell. The boy stood in the room. With a cocked eyebrow, he said that he was here from King Arthur's court to rescue her. She held up a handkerchief to her nose. Had he taken a bath? He reeked. The boy said that he had been traveling, so it was just washing his face and hands each morning, followed by his tooth twig. Pretty standard stuff. Why? Did he smell? The woman waved to her servants, who approached the knight and helped him unlace his armor. When it was off, they saw the source of the smell. The wound he had gotten fighting for the woman on the island was infected and reeking. Why didn't you wash that? The lady of Nohot yelled, throwing up in her mouth. It hurt! The boy yelled back. The woman said, yeah, it's a stab wound. It's gonna hurt. Can he even move that arm? The boy nodded and wiggled his shoulders. Dangling it doesn't count, the lady said. Uh, Then no, the boy replied. The woman nodded. All right, get to bed. But first, this had come for him. She held out a sword. The boy's sword. It arrived before you did. From the queen herself, the lady of Nohot informed him. When it came to wrapping up his quests, the ones that he started last week, after the boy's unintentional kidnapping of the first lady, he followed up with that giant, seven-foot-tall knight that was guarding the sleeping lady last episode. They got in a fight, because of course they did, and despite his injuries, the boy won, and kind of problematically, took possession of yet another lady. The two ladies that he had, now, breathed a sigh of relief when they learned that they were going to be the ladies-in-waiting for Queen Guinevere herself. And, in sending them along, the boy asked for one more thing. He wanted to be girded with the sword from the queen, not the king. He was her knight, and it was only fitting that she should knight him. He told her that if she chose to do this, to please send the sword to Nohat. Now, he was awestruck that she did it. He was her knight. He picked up the sword that, a few days ago, had been held by the queen. For a brief moment, it felt like they were together. The boy was reluctant to take some R&R, but the Lady of Nohat was the boss. He was lucky for two reasons. First, he didn't lose the arm. And second, the Conqueror was a relaxed enough guy to give the Lady a further two weeks for her champion to recover. Maybe he was really confident that he was going to win. Maybe he was really bad at his job. Who knows? 
the boy's convalescence did earn him the attention of King Arthur, who, over a month after he had sent the boy out to rescue the Lady of Nohat, learned that she was still, in fact, under siege. He sent the man who was a seneschal, and his adopted brother, Kay, out to see what the holdup was. Since he isn't obsessed with a 100% completion score on every quest, he made it in two days, without a mangled arm. There, he found the boy getting dressed for battle, and demanded to know what was going on. Why did he take so long? And explained his trip there, and his mandatory bed rest. Mom over there said he couldn't go fight with his arm, which was just a little stinky, and dead. Kay grimaced, you shouldn't fight like that. Kay said that the boy was obviously inexperienced, and he was taking control of this. He, Kay, would be fighting as the ladies' champion. The boy gripped his lance. Over his dead body, Kay was. Guys, seriously, you want to fight each other to see who can fight the attacker's knight? The lady of Nohat asked, her head lolling back in frustration. Managing these knights was like looking after a kindergarten class with swords. Fight them together. End of discussion, the Lady of Nohat demanded. Please, it's been a month. He might be bad at conquering, but he was really good at siegecraft. Also, it was part of his deal. It can be 1v1, 2v2, and so on. Get out there. Seriously. The boy and Kay groaned. Fine. They could share. The battle went quickly. The boy was such a hot shot that, when his guy started to fall, he offered to help out Kay. Kay and his opponent, both of their horses having died because two guys in armor were racing at each other with spears, finished up the fight quickly after that to find the boy standing over his surrendering opponent. It was done. No hot had been rescued from its admittedly very chill conqueror. Since he was an honorable warlord, the king of Northumbria agreed that, since two guys lost in a battle to two other guys, he would leave and never hassle the Lady of Nohat ever again. The Lady of Nohat, though, did want to hassle somebody. Kay was out of there the next morning. Being second banana to a newbie wasn't his idea of an honor. And if they could just take his name out of the credits, that would be fantastic. The boy, however, stuck around to bask in the afterglow. For the feast and the parade, and the tournament, and as he noticed the Lady of Nohot staring at him, intensely, through all of that, he decided that it was time for him to go. Before she could announce yet another feast for their champion, he announced that he was a knight, and a knight's got an errant. It was on the road, about a mile out, that she finally just came out and said it, offering the young man, quote, her land and herself as he might wish. But he politely declined and urged his horse on to a trot. A gallop and no eye contact eventually got the point across. Are you sure you're coming back? The boy's squire and page said to him, they had found a small shack and wished to spend the night, about 30 leagues, so about 100 miles, outside of Nohot. The boy, our knight, crouched down. Oh, yeah, champ, I'll be back. I just gotta run out for a pack of smokes. The squires looked at each other. But what? The knight said he had to run out for some charcoal so they could smoke the meat they hunted earlier that day. 
Don't worry, though. I'll be back in a jiff, bud. The squire smiled. They had the best night. And he had the best helpers. Bye, guys. He was about 30 miles away before they had an inkling that he might not be coming back. The boy was a strange one. He wanted to earn his honors, especially after being knighted into the most prestigious order of all time. But he didn't want his reputation to precede him. He wanted to learn job to job and truly be the best knight of all time. He could live without squires because he couldn't have them whispering to different servants and nobles at each stop, spreading the word about him. He was on his own. He was ready and... Okay, sorry, who are you? The boy stopped his horse, and the knight in front of him stopped his. The knight in front of him said it didn't matter. Turn back. The boy wrinkled his brow. What? No, you turn back. The knight sat up in his saddle, staring out to nowhere in particular. He said he couldn't do that. He had been tasked with guarding this river. No one may cross. It was his sacred duty. The boy tried to go around him, but the knight, again, turned his horse to block. The boy finally sat back. Okay, so the knight was just guarding this particular crossing? River. The boy sighed. River. What, are you worried Achilles is going to pop by? No, nothing? It was a joke. He fought a river. Never mind. I'll just go upstream and cross there. The boy turned to ride, but the knight only mirrored him, splashing in the ford. Do it. See what happens. You know what? I'll tell you what happens. I'll fight you upstream. I'll fight you downstream. I'll fight, well, actually those are the only two ways, so, yeah, I'll fight you. But why are you guarding a lone river in the middle of nowhere? The boy asked. The knight laughed. The boy had a lot to learn about being a knight. And it looked like the older knight was going to have to teach him a lesson. So he got down from his horse, fired up the projector, and started up his PowerPoint presentation. In the 14th century, knights would guard key travel spots, like gates, crossroads, and river crossings. They would sit there, waiting for another knight to arrive, against whom they could test their strength. It was an issue of honor, and if a knight didn't have a horse or armor, one might be provided to him. But if he chose not to fight, he would have to leave his spurs as a token of humiliation. This practice only lasted a couple hundred years, until peasants realized they could just start sniping at exposed knights with longbows. But it's kind of all over the place in the story of King Arthur and his knights. But isn't this like, the 7th century, the boy asked. Why are we doing something that wouldn't become a thing for 700 years? This is more removed than saying, like, Abraham Lincoln tweeted out the Gettysburg Address. The knight clicked over to a slide that said, Anachronism. Just get over it because it's everywhere in the medieval sources. Closed his laptop and mounted his horse. So, for the honor of Queen Guinevere, he would hold this ford against all other knights. The boy rolled his eyes and put on his helmet, then paused. Wait, did the knight just say Queen Guinevere? We'll check back in with the queen as she checks back in with the white knight's progress, but that will be right after this. (laughs) 
I didn't tell you to do that, Queen Guinevere said to the badly bruised knight about a week later, his cuts just starting to scab over. The knight, named Albion, told the queen that he had lost in battle to the strange white knight. After he demanded the man's name or to do battle, most people just end up identifying themselves. The kid, the white knight, didn't kill the knight at the ford, but instead offered up his horse to the defeated man in service to the queen. He politely declined the horse by screaming in terror and jumping atop his own, and he rode to Camelot to try to gleam the knight's name. Well, I'm glad you didn't take it because you were lying, Guinevere said, and informed the strange knight that she didn't know who the young man was and why was he still here? She told him he wasn't in her service. He said he had been defending the queen's ford for months and I don't care, the queen shot back. No one told him to do that. He held up his hands. All right, all right. Looks like I'll be in my way. Get it? Because my name is Albion. Get out! Guinevere yelled. And the man politely exited by shrieking and running to the door as fast as he could. Stop, the queen commanded, and Albion did. The man, the white knight. How did he look? Albion said, well, for starters, he was extremely good looking, like distractingly good looking. The queen waved her hand. Yes, that was very established in these stories. Was he doing all right? He was healthy? The knight nodded, and honestly, upon hearing your name, he was ready to give up everything. He would have died for you had I not forced him into a fight, Albion said. The queen nodded, thanking the knight. He was dismissed. She walked to the window to look out on the sea, to hide her smile from her ladies. Meanwhile, the boy was having an awkward conversation of his own. He had met a woman sobbing on the side of the road, and, though the white knight tried to coax the reason out of her, all that was really coming out of her mouth was spit and a whole lot of mucus. She soaked through three handkerchiefs before the young man learned the reason for her tears. Her husband was dead. He was a knight who had gone up against the trials of the Dolorous Guard, and, like everyone else, he had fallen. The boy shook his head. He was afraid he had no idea what the woman was talking about. She pointed up the road. It sits up there, on a desolate rock. There are two sets of walls to the castle. Outside the first, the knight must face ten knights in single combat, one at a time. But the knights are able to sub out at any time, so the knight who has to face them must be up to the task of taking on ten fresh knights in a row Back to back, and I'm sorry, are you salivating? The woman asked. The boy wiped his mouth. Whoops, yeah, sorry about that. It's just that she said that there was a task that only the best knight in the world could complete and everyone else had died. It's, where is this? How can he get to this castle as quickly as possible? The woman repeated that the dolorous guard was just up the road. But beware, because, though, he was gone. Missing only ominous organ music and thunderclouds, the castle on the rock looked every bit the symbol of dire portent that the woman warned about. But the boy was confident, powerful, unfazed by things that would terrify most men. But looking up at those winding, carved stairs to the first gate, and then the second, above which stood a bronze statue, 
he was filled with a gnawing sense of malaise and melancholy. There was something wrong with this place. It's cursed, a voice said behind him. He turned to see a veiled woman sitting side saddle. The white knight looked back up to the castle. He had heard of this castle. He heard it was a place where a man could win honor. It casts a pall on the whole village below, the woman said. It's a place of death, of pain. Everyone who approaches dies. No one who enters ever leaves. The boy wrinkled his brow, but you know what? Never mind. He said it didn't matter to him. He would be the knight to defeat the Dolorous Guard. The woman said she hoped that was the case, but she didn't hold out much hope. Still, if he managed to defeat the ten knights and make it through the first gate, the bronze statue that stood over the second would fall. And if he defeated the leader of the Dolorous Guard, the spell would be broken. The knight took a deep breath and nodded to the young lady, thanking her for her help. He rode for the castle. The wind whipped Castle Rock, where the knights sat atop their horses. It was a gray, overcast day, and sparse droplets of rain dotted the stone. The boy, the white knight, studied the castle knight. The man who sat in front of him studied his armor. He put on his helmet, and the knights rode at one another. He lowered his lance and missed. Well, he missed the clean win, the honorable win, where the castle knight would be thrown from his horse and injured, but not killed. That's unfortunately not what happened. The armor, slick with a little bit of rain on the wind, didn't catch the lance like it should have. The point slipped, found the gap in the knight's armpit, and crashed through his ribs. The castle knight cried out and fell to the ground. The white knight leaped from his horse, soared out, but the castle knight didn't move. The white knight, the boy, went to the man and tore off his helmet, his eyes staring to nowhere and blood dribbling from his mouth. He was dead. The white knight swore. He didn't want to kill the guy who absolutely would have killed him without a second thought, just injure or critically maim him. Then he heard galloping. Oh shoot, those guys weren't joking. Another knight was running out. It really was one right after another. Give up! Surrender! Say you're my prisoner! The white knight yelled to the second, as the third knight, seeing the second knight down, rushed from the castle on his horse. Never! The castle knight spat out with two of his teeth. The white knight put a sword to his throat. Okay, the man said, throwing his hands up. The boy sheathed his sword. That's what he thought. He ran back to his horse. He quickly unhorsed the third knight. And before the man was beaten, the fourth knight came rushing from the castle. Surrender, the white knight said, and smacked the supine castle knight hard with his sword. The white knight, the boy, barely paused. I didn't hear you say I surrender. The beatings will continue until you surrender, the boy said, smacking the knight again. Hey, you can't do that. That's against the rules the fourth knight said when he arrived. He was here to take the place of the knight on the ground. The white knight kept smacking the knight on the ground. Oh, there were rules to this fight to the death? The castle knight pointed his lance at the white knight. Well, 
He was here to defend his friend. Defend him? You can't even defend yourself, the boy yelled, wrenching the lance from the now firmly unconscious Castle Knight's hand on the ground and leaping atop his own horse. The White Knight uh, wasn't wrong, because it was after one go that the fourth Castle Knight's armored head hit the stone. In that time, the third knight had recovered enough to get up and try to run again. The boy calmly spun his horse around, charged the knight, and hit the man with the horse's chest. The story then says he jumped on the knight's body, shattering it until the man was no longer able to rise. I guess so much for honor. Just then, the man he just unhorsed was starting to get up. So he leapt atop his horse, rode over to the man, and demanded his surrender. He got it. The boy was feeling good, almost halfway there. He reached for his lance and realized that all of them were broken. He gripped his sword. That would have to do. If you think things have been violent up to this point, well, the fifth knight broke his lance against the white knights, the boy's, armor. And though pain radiated out, the boy saw his opening. He sliced down at the man's helmet, cutting through it, taking an ear off, and burying his sword in the man's neck. The neck was so compromised that it could no longer support the weight of the head, so the guy just rode around like some grotesque bobblehead until he dropped to the ground, blood pouring out of his neck and face. For the first time, the boy was able to breathe. He didn't have a knight coming after him. Wait, why wasn't there a knight coming after him? There were supposed to be ten. He did an exaggerated shrug in the direction of the castle. What, what was going on? Oh, it's, it's night time. We don't fight at night time, the knight that had been jumped on by the boy said. Also, I, I surrender now. The white knight was flabbergasted. What? Why? Is the fight to the death too dangerous at night? The knight on the ground would have shrugged, if he still had those bones. He didn't know, but rules were rules. No one else was coming out, except to get them, uh, hopefully. You see... There were these unwritten rules, and I mean literally unwritten and also uncommunicated, that said as soon as the sun set, the fighting would cease. They were probably made up and established before that particular fight, when they saw that they were losing and sunset was nigh, but it's also not a stretch to think that these guys that attack and kill anyone who comes by their cursed castle completely unprovoked might not be operating in good faith. The knight on the ground was right, though. No matter how much the boy tried to taunt the castle into sending another knight, the gate stayed shut. He sheathed his sword and mounted his horse. The veiled woman met him on the road, back down to the village. He was used to sleeping just off the road, but a bed might be nice, on a day when he fought five knights back to back. The woman offered to let him stay at her house, and even though she was a complete stranger to him, he accepted her hospitality. At least I took out five today. It'll be nice to come at it fresh tomorrow, you know, finish it up, the boy said. He heard the woman inhale sharply through her teeth. Yeah, about that. We'll see that this castle full of murderous knights has a surprising amount of rules, but that, once again, will be right after this.
As it turned out, another unwritten, uncommunicated rule was that if the sun sets in the battle, the challenger had to restart the following day. I guess they don't want someone abusing the system, the veiled woman said with an apology. They are literally abusing travelers, though, and wait, was this her house? The white knight said, looking up at the white stone villa, lodged in between two thatch houses in the village. The woman waved for him to enter. When he did, the lady took off her veil. The boy smiled. And how was his mother? The young woman nodded and said that the lady of the lake, his mother, sends her regards. The white knight also asked how long the ladies of the lake had been watching. The young woman said they had never stopped. Now, the boy could fool others, but she knew he had to be tired. Furthermore, he had made it farther than anyone else in his fight against the Dolorous Guard. It was a cheap trick to call it on account of darkness, and it wasn't fair to make someone fight ten nights back to back, so they were going to even the odds. Okay, but how did you know I would be here? And how did you know I would fight them? The boy interjected. The woman said that they had been watching him. They followed him. The boy gestured to the house all around. This, this wasn't trivial magic. What did the locals see when they looked at this house? An alleyway? A pigsty? This took time. You were always going to come here, the young woman said, interrupting him. You were always meant to come here. Tomorrow, in this place, you will learn your name. The young man was struck silent by these words. His name, how would he, in the name of your mother and father as well. It's in that castle. But first, you have to win. There were three shields. The single-banded shield would give him the additional strength of one knight. The double, two, and the triple-banded shield, three. He shouldn't trust in his youth. And the moment he starts to feel his strength wane, he should pick up a shield. When he wanted to finish things, he should pick up the third shield. And the people would see wonders greater than any in the world. As the white knight walked with the lady after mass the following morning, he began to attract a crowd. The people of the village had come out to see the young man who was going to defeat the Dolorous Guard and free this land. The lady walked close, patting him on the back and whispering into his ear. He would overcome them on this day. He wasn't fated to fall in battle if he was wearing his helmet on his head and his hauberk on his back. Wait, like any battle or just this one? He asked. But when he looked to her, she was gone. They passed the house where he had stayed last night, but now it was simply an alleyway. He smirked and made his way to Castle Rock. When he arrived, ten knights were on horses, arrayed in front of the gate. The boy looked up, pointed at one, and the knight rode from the castle. When the knight was on the ground and bleeding, the white knight looked to his lance. It had been shattered. So had the attacker's lance, and, well, I guess the attacker too. When the next knight rode for him, he pulled out his sword. When that knight got a cut through his nose and cheek, dropping back and fainting from the pain, the boy waved for more, yelling out that they could come two, three at a time if they wanted. Uh, are you sure? The castle knight yelled back. 
The boy said yes, he didn't have all day. Because we wanted to, but we didn't want to assume, you know? The castle knight yelled, No, I get it. So, you guys gonna attack, or... Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, on our way. The castle knight yelled back, put his helmet on, and charged. One man was unconscious, the other was dazed, and the third wasn't surrendering. The white knight gripped him by the back of his armor. Oh, no, no, no. You're not going back to the castle, he said. The castle knight looked to him with defiance. So the boy gave him a sharp hit across his teeth with his sword. Through markedly fewer teeth, the knight gummed out a surrender, which the boy accepted, saying out loud that he couldn't be blamed for killing knights that wouldn't do the decent thing and surrender. Though, there has to be some middle ground between letting them walk away and breaking their face. Still, the white knight's Jack Bauer tactics were effective. The third castle knight threw up his hands. He surrendered. He surrendered so hard, he was going to go ahead and just tie himself up. The boy nodded. See that you do that. At that, three more knights charged from the castle on the hill. The next three did not go as well as the first four, because the thing about jousting is, it's really hard to do without a lance. The white knight was hit multiple times before he was able to slash at his foes on horseback, sending them back to the castle of the Dolorous Guard to be relieved by three more fresh knights to round out the ten who stood guard over the first gate. The white knight waited, blood pouring down his armor and streaming down his horse. He heard someone clear their throat at his side and looked down to see a squire holding the shield with one band, the shield from the Lady of the Lake. This was a stranger, the boy's own squires were still waiting in that far-off cabin, sure that dad was coming back any day now. The boy sighed. It was almost three in the afternoon now. He had wanted to do this all in his own strength, despite the Lady of the Lake telling him to do exactly not that. But sure, he threw down the iron-attached scraps of his old shield and took up the first magical shield of the Lady of the Lake. Oh man, the white knight cried out when he sliced right through the shoulder of the attacking castle knight, the shield, armor, and mail tearing like paper after he got his little power up. The castle knight screamed, but surrendered on the spot. It was actually a tough final battle because while the single banded shield helped his strength, he was reckless in his pursuit of the castle knights, bleeding and flagged. He took up the double banded shield, after a long final battle, the biggest of the knights dropped to the ground and surrendered. It was over. The young man had defeated the Dolorous Guard. There was a grinding noise as the gate up ahead opened. Not a side door for a knight or two, but the actual gate was opening for the first time in recent memory. The boy was victorious. He... Oh, seriously? He said, looking up through the gate and seeing ten more fresh armored knights sitting atop their horses. In the middle was the biggest, razor-sharp lance pointing down at the white knight. Yeah, it turns out that treacherous cursed guards, well, they're treacherous. Who could have seen that coming? The squire from the Lady of the Lake was next to the boy again, with a third shield. But the boy remembered what the Lady of the Lake had told him the previous night, and looked up. Like a hole in a space station that leads directly to its very explosive core, 
the massive bronze statue that stood over the inner wall had a very damaging vulnerability. People looking at it. If the person who defeated the Dolorous Guard looked at the statue, it would fall. Never mind that statues are basically made to be looked at, but the White Knight did just that. He looked up at the bronze statue, and it started to fall. By the time the castle knights below saw the growing shadow, it was too late. Five were in range, four were critically wounded by the massive bronze statue, apparently propped up on Jenga blocks, and that big tough guy in the middle, well, he ended up painting the interior of the first wall. The five knights that could flee were understandably freaked out and took off. They might be cursed knights defending an evil castle, but they didn't need this. Also, they saw the guy out there missing his teeth and most of his jaw. Yeesh. The white knight, accepting that as a substitute for their surrender, yelled a, Wait. No. Don't go. Before sitting back in his saddle and breathing for the first time that day, as the sun set behind him, he had done it. He had defeated the Dolorous Guard, liberated the castle, and lifted the curse on this land. I mean, he didn't, actually, because he learned, not that much later, that the lord of the castle, when he saw his statue fall, and the last of his knights either die or flee, fled himself off into the night, as fast as his horse could carry him. And so, the curse persisted, until that man was killed. The white knight's vision trailed off. That was one loose end he would have to wrap up, but not yet. The people of the castle, as it turned out, were pretty cool. They had been captives there for years, under the monstrous rule of the Dolorous Guard. They had been forced to treat the lord of the castle and his knights like kings, while the men kept them captive and in servitude, plundering the land around them for anything of value. Since the young man, the White Knight, had liberated them, they had something to show him. The castle had a graveyard, just inside of one of its interior walls, but it was empty. It was full of headstones, but there were no graves. At the back, overgrown grass crowded in on a stone slab. It said, This slab will only be lifted by the one whose name is underneath, by the one who defeats the Dolorous Guard. The boy's heart beat in his throat. This was it then. This was where he learned who he was. He approached the slab that... The story says if it were unencumbered, would be nearly impossible for four knights to lift on their own. He grabbed the divot on the side and lifted it without issue. He read the inscription on the grave underneath. Here will lie Lancelot of the Lake, son of King Ban of Benwick. The boy staggered back, dropping the stone back into place. He, he knew of King Ban one of the kings who helped Arthur win his civil war. And of his wife, Lane, he was their son. The king had died of a heart attack on the side of the lake where he had been raised. Queen Elaine, Elaine was still out there somewhere. A weighty destiny settled on him. A name. A purpose. He was the son of a king. He was Lancelot. That's where we'll leave things this week. 
as the rest of the kingdom comes to grips with the seismic shift of the Dolorous Guard having fallen, deserving a visit from King Arthur himself, if only he can get past Lancelot's bouncer. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a live Arizona bark scorpion, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that, sadly, can't survive a nuclear test in the Arizona desert. Not sure why that's a selling point for the scorpion, but it is. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Yanning, from Lancelot's hometown in Brittany, France. Now, walking on the road at night, you might hear an owl hoot. Fun times, right? We have one who hangs out in a tree by our house who hoots all the time at night. It's kind of getting a little annoying. One thing I've never thought to do, answer it. Now, I don't know how you answer an owl call, whether it's like a really boring and simple version of who's on first or just hoot right back at the owl. Regardless, with the Yanning, it's a bad idea. The Yanning lives in the water all day and only comes up at night to feed. It must be doing pretty well too because the owl call is its only method of locating prey. Basically, if you can't resist calling back to an owl not one, but three times, well, you will find the Yanning on your back, an older man who devours you instantly. Good rule of thumb to follow in your life? Don't be the guy running around the street at night shouting at birds. He's not just down for a meal, but he's also pretty popular with the ladies, in the same way that the sirens in the Odyssey were popular with Odysseus. They are completely and inescapably consumed by their desire for the Yanig and will stop at nothing to be with him. The Yanig knows this, and after he's consumed a person, will pull up his boat just past the point where the sea gets deep. He'll drop anchor and start another call of his own, drawing all the young women in the area to him. Like the sirens, the Yanig doesn't want anything out of the interaction other than to watch people suffer, so he'll just sit out there smiling and singing until everybody drowns, jump out of the boat, and go back home with a full stomach and an inflated sense of self-importance. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.